Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. My name's Brad. I'm one of the elders who are here. And before we jump into this text, I just want to say thank you. Um, last Sunday, we had a follow-up panel discussion um, from the MLK 50 week that many of you were a part of. And I just want to say that I was so encouraged this last week and um, would even go as far as to say proud of this family of believers in the intentionality in which you guys are showing, the kindness that you are showing, and the humility in order to seek to, as best we can, try to understand one another in order that we can love one another well. And so you may have seen this last week on Facebook, we, paste, we posted each day different resources that you can go back and follow up. And one of the suggestions that was made was that last Sunday wouldn't be just a Sunday, but that it might be an ongoing conversation for us. And so we have another Sunday, May the 20th, in which we will dig deeper into some other questions Concerns and how the gospel speaks to racial reconciliation. So you can look forward to that. Today's text, before we jump into it, a quick story. Last weekend, my wife and I made a terrible discovery. It was innocent for the most part. wouldn't say completely, but for the most part... It all began with a simple 30-day free Netflix trial. But before we knew it, we had been pulled into the world of Stranger Things. A show that was built, apparently, simply to make, turn people into binge watchers. It's impossible to stop it. It's like crack. I mean, if there's anything we learned from the 80s, because the show is set in the 80s. And if anyone grew up in the 80s, if there's anything we learned from Nancy Reagan, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, right? So just say no. And we didn't do it. Stranger Things is set in the small town of Hawkins, Indiana, if you haven't seen it. It's a normal small town, except for the nearby Hawkins National Laboratory, which performs scientific research for the U.S. Department of Energy, whoever they are. And this laboratory secretly does experiments into the paranormal and the supernatural. Inadvertently on the show, they have created a portal to an alternate dimension called the Upside Down. The dimension resembles normal life, yet in this upside down dimension, if you will, everything is dark. There's a shadow that seems to hang over the Upside Down. The air is toxic, and the world seems, for the most part, to be abandoned. Post-apocalyptic, in a sense. Except for the terrible creatures which exist in this alternate dimension. Like the one who abducts Will Byers in the first, dimen- in the first episode, if you've seen it. Clearly, a science fiction horror film. Clearly. Many of you are overly familiar with what I'm talking about. But if you're new to reading the Bible this morning, as you hear this text that we are looking into, 
as you think about this text, it would seem at first, has the writer been sucked into the upside down? Is he in some type of alternate universe or dimension in which he begins to describe a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a voice so powerful that the listeners beg for it to stop speaking? What's going on in this text? What in the world? In this text, the writer of Hebrews, he's describing two actual mountains. One that speaks to the law of the Old Testament, the former covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. You may be briefly familiar with that story. The other mountain is is called Zion. And this mountain shares a double meaning. It was an actual city that David captured, which became known as Jerusalem. But it progresses throughout the New Testament To not simply refer to a city that then became Jerusalem, that became the place of where the living God resided there amongst the temple. But it progresses in the New Testament to also speak to or to refer to God's spiritual kingdom. And as many of you know, we love to teach through books of the Bible. And that's why we're in Hebrews. Love to teach through books of the Bible because we think that's where we best find Jesus. And in this book of Hebrews, just a little context, over the last 20 weeks, we've been digging in to this letter that was written to a group of people who are struggling. These people were discouraged. They were losing their possessions. Their families were being threatened. Their lives were in danger simply because of their belief in Jesus. And all the while, their temptation is to turn back to what is familiar. For them, that was the Jewish way of life. To turn back to the laws that they knew from the Old Testament. To simply turn away from Jesus and all of their troubles would go away. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I don't know if you've ever been at a place personally where you too are struggling with your faith. Struggling to continue the fight. Struggling to hold on. Maybe that's where you are today. The writer of Hebrews is seeking to remind the people, hold on, don't give up. Let me show you the reality Not of what's simply around you in the moment. Let me show you the truer and deeper reality of what is. And let me remind you that Jesus is better. Today's text is essentially a call to worship. It's a call for us to examine our hearts. And when I say a call to worship, I don't mean to examine a church building we come to. But instead... To examine the spiritual temperature of our lives. Because God's call to us is to remember that we too, just like the people he's writing to, we too belong to the upside down. Not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual one. Not a temporary kingdom, but an eternal one. Not a weak kingdom, but an unshakable one. 
So today we're going to look at three characteristics of God's kingdom. Three characteristics that we come to know as followers of Jesus. But in order to do that, we have to look at two worship services. The first takes place at Mount Sinai. Follow along with me as we look at this amazing text. The first thing that we see is we belong to a spiritual kingdom. We belong to a spiritual kingdom. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. The writer is speaking back to Exodus chapter 19. Really... uh, Quite extraordinary story if you're not familiar with the giving of the law. Look back at Exodus 19 later. It refers to that moment at Mount Sinai, 52 days after the children of Israel had been freed from Egypt. Many things had taken place up to this point, And God commands Moses to prepare the people to receive his law. These laws that he would give would be simple rules that he would give to a society in order that they would learn how to live not as a people who are enslaved, but as a people who are under not the authority of sinful men, but under the authority of a God who is holy and right and just. And the laws were quite simple. We've talked about those laws before. They were things like tell the truth, When you come home from work, make sure that your wife is still your wife. So don't sleep with someone else's wife. Like really simple laws that a society needs in order to just coexist with one another. To be kind. We often call them the Ten Commandments. The people were commanded to wash their garments, to prepare themselves. And this is where the story gets really interesting. God set set limits around Mount Sinai. And they were warned that if any person or animal touches the mountain in the presence of the Lord as he descends upon Mount Sinai, that they were commanded to be stoned or shot with an arrow, I would assume. And God was showing the Israelites that he is righteous, that he is holy, and that he is powerful. And I'll just be the first to say as a a pastor who every week examines the scriptures and then gives a discourse and not much of a dialogue, but a discourse. I want to say that it's really difficult for us as individuals to begin to wrap our minds around what a holy and righteous and just and powerful God is like. Especially in a democracy filled with individuals. But the scriptures go on to remind us that God is holy. And I think this passage is really interesting. This is more of a side note. But it's interesting that God doesn't say that he would strike down those who touched the mountain. But instead, he gives that responsibility and accountability to Moses and the people of Israel. Now, I am not proposing that church discipline today should involve some type of target practice. Not proposing that. But it is interesting that it seems that God places the accountability on his people. As the church, we are to remember God's holiness. As a church, 
He is not to be treated lightly. Neither are his truths to be treated lightly. They're not mere ideas or suggestions. But Jesus said that these are the words of the living God. Who is powerful and holy and righteous. And calls his church to display those qualities to the world. Now look in as verse 18 continues. Wrap your mind around this story and get, get this picture. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here's the picture, a blazing fire. So let me be clear, no one had their s'more sticks, okay? This is not fire pit in the backyard, but this is a moment in which the Spirit of God is descending upon Mount Sinai. And the smoke is not billowing up from the mountain, but God's Spirit is descending upon the mountain and the smoke is coming down. Exodus 19 says, like a kennel. So, like you would fire pottery in a kiln. If you can imagine the intense heat that it would take and the smoke that billows up from that, God's smoke is billowing down or descending upon this mountain. And as it rolls down, it's there in order to protect the people from the glory of God. That the Israelites would be hidden so that they wouldn't suffer death. A blazing fire. It goes on to say, darkness and gloom and a tempest. Get this picture. It's morning time in the middle of the desert at Mount Sinai. And this mountain is quickly covered in smoke. Which begins to descend not only upon the mountain but upon the people. And then darkness settles on the land. And this ominous feeling is a violent storm with intense wind begins to blow again into the desert. And the people are overwhelmed. So overwhelmed as they hear angels who are blowing trumpets. And as the voice of God literally shakes the mountain. They beg God as they're scared out of their minds. Including Moses. That God would stop speaking. Because they are fearing for their lives. Get this picture. That's our God. Holy, righteous, untouchable, powerful. Let that sink in. This is God. He is unapproachable. That's the first scene. Mount Sinai. That's the first worship service. Now, continue... In verse 22, and we see a second characteristic of a spiritual kingdom is that we belong to a spiritual kingdom, but also we belong to an eternal kingdom. Look at verse 22. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Do you see the way in which the scene suddenly changes here? Instantly we see a difference in the two worship services. Zion, this word that we've already briefly discussed, it appears over 150 times in the Bible. 
It's a literal place that King David conquered before Jerusalem ever was. And he conquers it. And later, throughout the scriptures, we would come to know Zion as Jerusalem. And then Solomon would build the great temple there. So it would be not just Jerusalem, but the Temple Mount. And you've got to get this picture in your head that this was the place where the Psalms were written. All the Psalms of Ascent, they were going up to Zion. They were going up to worship God, up to the temple. This was the place where the children of Israel met with God. And so as he refers to Zion, known as Jerusalem, the city where the glory of God dwells, now in the new covenant because of Jesus, Zion is used to describe the church of God, to describe the heavenly city, the place where God reigns with his people. And as you see the scene change, you see innumerable angels. They're in festal gathering. There's a party taking place in this scene. There's doom and gloom. There's fire. There's a tempest and a storm. There's fear in the first scene. Now we've got a party taking place. It it likens us to the time in which not that angels were blowing trumpets and that people were scared, but angels are now here. And it likens us to remembering the time in which Jesus was born. And there were angels who said, Behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy that will be to all the people. Completely different in this scene. Verse 23 goes on to say, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Get this picture. He's calling this scene and this worship service, he refers to the firstborn. He's talking about you and me. Each of us who have come to know Jesus as Lord and as King. Each of us who have been, as the scriptures say, born again. We're now firstborn in the new covenant. For the Hebrews, to be firstborn signals the idea that you get all the rights. The firstborn had a double portion of the inheritance. If you weren't firstborn, you just missed out in the Hebrew culture. But if you were, it was a good deal. See, the firstborn gained this not because of their works or not because of their accomplishments, not because of anything that they earned, but it was a right that came to them because of their birth. And not only do we see firstborn who are there, but we see a judge. And we see a judge who is not there in order that he would push people away from him. Not that he would say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not that he would sentence people to hell to spend eternity apart from his presence. But we see a judge who is here in heaven who has welcomed all of those who are followers of Jesus... And he is residing, welcoming them into heaven. And it refers to all those who are citizens of his kingdom. And it refers to them as spirits of the righteous made perfect. I don't know if that means much to you. But for me as a pastor, spirits of the righteous made perfect... Sometimes I get discouraged 
Because in our ministry and even in our church or maybe in our missional community or the people that are around us, there just seem to be those people that no matter how hard we try and no matter how much we love, it seems that they're just never going to get it together. This world has brought sin and wounds and damage to a point where they're just never going to get it together. And the longer that I minister and the longer that I'm a pastor, the more that I come to realize in my own life, there are areas within my own sanctification where it feels like at times I'm just never going to get it together. And when I look at this text, Jesus is welcoming the firstborn. He's welcoming them as judge. Everyone who has found life in Jesus by confessing their sins and bowing their knee to him and declaring him as king and as Lord, he's welcoming them in and he's saying that they are spirit to the righteous and they're made perfect. Glory to God. There will be a day in which, folks, we will get it together. Not because we got it together, but because of the blood of Jesus. One day, all things will be made new. No more struggles. No more failing. Why? Because Jesus uses his earthly name, not son of God, Jesus. And remember God's words to Cain. Your brother's blood is crying out. Cain killed Abel. Abel's blood is crying out. Cain carried the guilt of his brother's murder all his life. And now it seems that in this second worship service at Mount Zion, in this picture we see that Jesus' blood is crying out and it shouts of our forgiveness. It shouts of our covering. It shouts of the eternal life and the righteousness that we now haven't earned but that's been offered to us because of God's grace. Two pictures, two worship services. Finally, we're left with a warning. And the final characteristic we see of the kingdom citizens is that we belong to an unshakable kingdom. We belong to an unshakable kingdom. Listen to this warning the Hebrew author leaves with his people. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is a prophetic warning. One day, this present created realm, this earth will be shaken by God so that only those eternal things that are of Him will remain. And everything about our world pushes back against this. Everything about our world pushes back against this and presses us into this world. To buy the biggest house and the nicest car and the best school that we can afford for our kids. To climb the corporate ladder no matter what it takes. The world says, you get yours 
because you only ride this roller coaster once and no one else has your back. So you get yours. But God has called his church, he's called us to embrace, if you will, an alternative dimension where up is down and down is up. Where first is last and last is first. The kingdom of God. Where he rules and he reigns. Today we visited two worship services, two gatherings that help us in evaluating our own worship. Some people in this world are stuck on Mount Sinai. They're stuck there. Their view of God is one of religion in which it is ruled by fear. It's ruled by following laws and rules and traditions. And God is far off and removed and oftentimes unhappy with them. He might love them, but he doesn't like them. Others have never visited Mount Sinai. So they can't really appreciate Zion and the way to God that has been prepared for them through the blood of Jesus. See, without Mount Sinai, we'll see God as a spoiled child sees his parents, believing that what's best is that we always get our way. But we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And it enables us to live differently. It enables us to open our wallets and to give freely and not to hoard. Why do we have to hoard? We're not storing up treasures on this earth. It enables us to open our hearts to people who seem unlovable and to welcome them into our lives, at times even our homes. It enables us to share the gospel and even to suffer for his name's sake. It results in a powerful kingdom. Not of an alternate dimension, but a powerful kingdom here on earth. And if we really believe this, it gives us the ability to fully enter into the upside down. This passage ends, and we'll end today with verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. If you know anything about hermeneutics and interpreting the Bible, you sense in verse 28 that the word therefore kind of gives us the crux of this whole passage. What's it there for? What is this whole passage leading us to and teaching us about? Mount Sinai helps us to understand what we have received or what we've been spared from. The writer paints a dark picture intentionally in order that we can see the beauty, not of Sinai, but the beauty of Zion, the beauty of God's kingdom, the beauty of dwelling with God. You say, one day? Yes, one day and even now because his kingdom is here. Jesus first message as he comes in the book of John the kingdom of God is at hand the rule and reign of God is now 
our response to that as the church is to follow him. The world's response is, if God's rule and reign is now, why hasn't the world changed? And the whole point of this passage is, Jesus is saying, oh, it has changed. It is changing through my life, by my church, and it will be changed. It will be shaken again. 28 says, therefore, let us be grateful. Grateful for what? Grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me ask, what are you grateful for in your life? Are you grateful for Jesus? Are you grateful for temporary things? He goes on and he says... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which means we can be grateful no matter what our circumstances are. We can find joy in Jesus no matter where we find ourselves in this life. And then he says, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How do we do this? How do we offer to God with gratitude worship that's filled with reverence and awe? When it comes to worship in America, when certainly we need to think outside of America, but when it comes to worship today, there are many uh, worship wars uh, in many churches as some people would fight for a certain type of music. I think the easy way to think of reverence and awe would be to say, well, to reverence God and to be in awe, we must be more quiet in our worship. So our liturgy would lead us more toward somber moments. There were others that would say to, to reverence God and to be in awe, we should move not toward quiet, but toward loud, toward passionate Toward praise. I don't think either one of those really get to the heart of what it means to reverence and to awe God. Clearly, we at Mercy Hill have more aligned on the moments of quiet. We choose hymns not because we always listen to them in our car, but we choose a lot of hymns because there is a depth to the doctrine of what we sing that resembles the scriptures that we preach. It's not to say that other songs that we don't sing don't equally speak to the majesty of God. But two illustrations that I want to leave you with as you think about what it means to worship God and to be grateful in reverence and awe. Two illustrations. Because remember this. The two worship services that we saw, God has not changed. He is jealous. He's not tame. He's dangerous. He's to be worshipped with reverence and awe. He is a consuming fire, which means he is jealous for his glory. And he has every right to be because he is holy. Two illustrations. The first comes from Child's book by C.S. Lewis called The Silver Chair. Lewis uses the figure, the figure of Aslan, the giant and majestic lion, to depict the Lord. At one point, one of his heroines, the adventurous girl Jill, comes upon a stream of water... 
She's been lost and is dying of thirst. But as she comes forward, she spies the lion sitting calmly before the water. Terrified, she stops in her tracks. The lion invites her. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Dying of thirst and drawn by the rippling gurgle of the stream, the girl steps a bit forward. Will you promise not to do anything to me? If I do come, she meekly asks. I make no promise, said the lion. Drawn closer by the refreshing sounds of water, she wonders aloud, do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, he replies. Jill recoils at this, concluding, I daren't come and drink. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, cries Jill. Drawn yet a step closer by her need of refreshment, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion responds, There is no other stream. God does what he will, and he doesn't owe us an explanation, he doesn't owe us anything. But he has chosen to be gracious. He is good, but he is not safe. The second illustration that I would share with you comes from one verse from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. What does it mean with gratitude to reverence and awe God? Does it mean to be quiet? Does it mean to be loud? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at the end of verse 15 and 16. I'll end with this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Timothy, Paul is writing Timothy, and in this text, he describes in a doxology. So it's a liturgy. As he ends, he describes God as being sovereign. So he is invincible in the second part of verse 15. He goes on in 16 to say, not only is he invincible, but he is immortal. He has always been. He always will be. Not only is he invincible and immortal, he is inaccessible. And finally, he describes him as being invisible. Now, one writer has commented on this and said, he is invisible in the sense of his being. No one has seen or ever shall see God. God told Moses, no man can see me and live. Similarly, John says, no man has seen God at any time. Even looking upon God with sinful eyes is too much for our finite bodies to handle. And the writer went on to say this. It's not that God is so that he cannot be seen. Paul is not talking about bending light around God. He's not talking about invisible jets or force fields or cloaking devices or stealth drones that still give give off mild heat signatures. He's talking about a being that has a quality of which our eyes are not made to see. 
of which our minds are not able to comprehend. We cannot see him because he remains undisclosed to us. If he does not show himself, we will not see him. So we need to pause before thinking that we are gathering in any way to see God. Christ is the one who made it so we can approach God. He came to us in the incarnation to bring God down to man. We can go to God because of Jesus' blood. And one day, because of Christ, the scriptures tell us that we will see God face to face like Adam and Eve. Not like the children of Israel in fear at Mount Sinai, but with joy that we will party with Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. And then we will know the unapproachable God. God is with us today. He's with us even now. God has made a way that we can know him through the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, before he left, that for all those who confess their sins and place their trust in him, that he would give us his spirit, that his spirit would remain in us. He says, God close, is he here? He is in you. He desires that you would know him you would walk with him in the most intimate way all throughout the Bible. Illustration after illustration after illustration. The very essence of marriage is that the kind of closeness and oneness that we desire and find with a spouse is a mere illustration of the intimacy that we will have with God. And Jesus says that we are his bride and he is the groom, and he's coming back for us. In our liturgy, we have moments of confession, times in which we take a quiet moment just to allow the Spirit of God who's in us to speak to our hearts. Today, as the band comes forward and takes communion, and those who are serving communion, let me invite them forward. Today, if you would bow your heads with me, and, and for this time of confession. Confession is a time in which we can repent. We can hear the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. To repent simply means I was, it's a military term. It means you're going the wrong way. You're not going to reach your objective and it means that you would turn and that you would go in the correct way. With your heads bowed, with a quiet moment of confession before we take communion, let me just simply ask, have you valued what can be shaken in this world over God who is unshakable? What are those things? What have you valued? It's temporary. It's shakable. And what would it look like for you to turn away from those things and to follow an unshakable God? How would he open up new areas in your life in which he desires for his kingdom to come and his will to be done even on earth as it is in heaven. Take these quiet moments to reflect and then I'll pray and we'll worship together in communion.
Father, we thank you that we can even address you with a term that's so endearing because of Jesus. God, as we look at a really difficult text today, a text that's difficult to wrap our our minds around, a text that's difficult to wrap our hearts around, God, may we be reminded of your power. God, may we be reminded of your glory. May we be reminded of your holiness. God, may we be reminded of Jesus who has made the way for us to know you. He's made the way for us to have eternal life. He's made the way for us to find forgiveness and to have hope. God, I thank you that we don't have to wait on your kingdom. God, I thank you that you're here among us, that you seek for your will to be done through your church even now. But God, I also thank you that this is not it. God, I thank you that there will be a day in which all things will be made new. God, may we live this life with that hope in mind. As we come to worship at your table today, God, may we be reminded of the beauty of Jesus. And may Jesus' life and death and resurrection give us gratitude to truly worship you in reverence and in awe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's church said,